This is Plucked. Stories plucked straight from the history of folk and acoustic music. From all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell Of how the good old union has come in here to dwell Which side are you on? Which side are you on? This is the classic union rallying song, Which Side Are You On?, as performed by the Almanac Singers. They were a super group of the 1940s that included both Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. They were also the first group to create a national market for what was once a regional song with a very narrowly defined target audience, coal miners of Harlan County, Kentucky, during the 1931 clash between mine workers and mine owners. That's pretty narrow. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? And yet the song's appeal has since proven to be much more universal. Its haunting call for solidarity has resonated with artists as radically different from one another as the Freedom Singers. Billy Bragg. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Annie DeFranco. Which side are you on, man? Which side are you on? Tom Morello. And Rebel Diaz. But my favorite version might be this one. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? This is Florence Reese, and while it's true she probably wouldn't have gotten very far in American Idol, it's also true that recordings don't get much more genuine than this one. Not only is her voice beautifully untrained and unassuming, but she's the one who wrote Which Side Are You On? It's her song, and she's the one who lived through the violent conflict that inspired it. I'm Bobby Waller, and this is the real-life story behind Which Side Are You On? Reese had been meaning to write a new song for a while now. That's the role she played in the movement. She wrote songs and poems about the hardships of coal mining and the need to band together to make life better. She performed them at union rallies and picnics and taught them to others so that her message of working-class solidarity could spread out over time and across county lines. Purveyors of folk music have long held sacred the largely romantic notion that their songs somehow help oppressed people. But for Florence Reese, that notion wasn't a romantic fantasy. It was her life. Florence Reese was the real deal. Which made her creative dry spell a bit out of character. She searched half-heartedly for a piece of paper and pencil, reviewing old Appalachian melodies in her head. Barbara Allen, be kind to Barbara Allen, Darling Cora, oh, the last time I saw Darling Cora, 
bury me under the weeping willow. It was always good to set new union songs to old melodies, made them seem more familiar, more comfortable, easier to remember. But none of these seemed quite right. Pretty Polly, the Knoxville girl, only wise. I'll tell you all a story about only wise. So many songs about murder and infidelity, about women who'd suffered or committed the most egregious misdeeds. They were good songs, all right, but Florence worried they might bring about the wrong associations. This was a battle for hearts and souls, after all. So the demon lover and that high-born galamine just wouldn't cut it. Florence's search for paper and pencil didn't take long in a one-room home, but her mission was only half accomplished. She'd found a pencil, or at least the remains of one, but paper was a scarce commodity in a coal miner's home. About the only blank paper they ever saw was the paper their meat came wrapped in, and they didn't buy much meat. Sam was a good husband, a hard-working man, but his salary as a rank-and-file mine worker didn't exactly provide ribeye steaks for him, Florence, and their six remaining children. The Reeses didn't eat their meat in patties or slabs, but in small flecks found in their greens, boiled down to soften them from their previous rock-hard states, and always mixed into something else that could cut the overbearing taste of salt that had been used to prevent rot, or, in many cases, to hide the rot that was already there. Florence put down the pencil. If the muse wasn't coming, she wasn't going to force it. Besides, she told herself, there are bigger fish to fry right now. Tension between mine workers and mine owners was at an all-time high, and because Sam had been an outspoken advocate for unionization since the strike of 22, the Harlan County Coal Operators Association had openly targeted him for retribution. And in Harlan County, retribution never came softly. The security guards who worked for the Black Mountain Mining Company had been fully deputized by the county's blatantly pro-ownership sheriff, J.H. Blair, and had been given permission to use force against unionizers on or off the clock. There was no privacy for a Harlan County miner in 1931. Even their homes were owned by the company, and as far as Sheriff Blair was concerned, the company could do whatever they wanted with those homes. Earlier in the day, fellow unionizers had overheard some company thugs discussing plans to pay Sam a little visit that evening, teach him some gratitude. Sam had long since vowed the thugs would never get the pleasure of torturing him in front of his children, and so he hid instead of going home that night. Or at least Florence hoped he was hiding. The union had cued her into Sam's plan, but there was no way for her to know if he had succeeded in that plan. Was he absent because he was hiding, or was he absent because he'd fallen into the wrong hands? Florence was a little worried because she'd heard gunplay earlier that evening, but then again, gunplay wasn't exactly an unusual sound in Bloody Harlan. The violence between its haves and have-nots was infamous throughout the country, as was the unmatched poverty of the latter. Harlan's on-the-job death rates were out of this world. The lucky ones went quickly, blown to bits by a poorly planned explosion, or crushed under the weight of a shaft that hadn't been maintained in years. The less lucky ones suffocated, 
either in a matter of hours while trapped in a sealed off chamber or in a matter of years from untreated black lung. There was no health care and no relief from the companies. Miners' babies were born on kitchen tables. Their children spent long Kentucky winters barefoot and joined their fathers in the mine at age 12. To say the miners worked for little pay would be an understatement. And to say they worked for no pay was arguably true. They lived in company-owned homes, so their rent money went right back to the company. They also bought their groceries in company-owned stores and were fired or even arrested if they dared to spend their money elsewhere. It was American totalitarianism. The mining company is your landlord, your grocer, your police force, and your judicial system. It runs everything, and there's no way around that. Except maybe through strength in numbers. And that's where the union came in. It was easy for mine owners to ignore the grievances of individual laborers. If an individual worker complained, they'd just fire him and throw a fresher, more appreciative slab of meat down the hole. Presto changeo, problem solved. But what if the grievances didn't come from an individual? What if they came from thousands of unified individuals? And what if those unified individuals collectively agreed to just stop working? You could bring production to a halt, which would stem the flow of capital to the same people who've been stemming the flow of capital to you. You could hit the owners right in the only place they cared about, their pocketbooks. And at that point, they'd have no choice but to sit at the bargaining table with you. Theoretically, at least. It hadn't quite worked that way in 22. The United Mine Workers of America, UMWA, had proven unequal to the government-backed firepower of Harlan's mine owners, and striking miners returned to work with no noticeable improvements to their quality of life. In the ensuing years, Florence's own father died in a mining accident, and her family's growing desire for effective unionization seemed more anachronistic against the backdrop of Harlan's crippling status quo and the seeming complacency of its workforce. But then, something happened. It was panic. 16 and a half million shares of stock sold in a single day. The stock market crashed in late 1929, ushering in the Great Depression. Coal prices dropped drastically, and Harlan's mine owners compensated by cutting the salaries of their already impoverished workers by 10%. This was more than Harlan's workforce could take. Suddenly, miners who hadn't spoken up in years were incensed and ready to fight. Sam's position as a labor organizer became more and more crucial as more and more voices called for a strike. But of course, a strike is an expensive proposition for a union. The Black Mountain Mining Company would fire strikers and evict their families from their company-owned homes, while Sheriff Blair's goons would beat the shit out of anyone who looked at them funny. 
This meant the union would have to find emergency food, housing, and medical care for hundreds, maybe thousands of people. The UMWA, knowing it wasn't up to the task, withdrew from Harlan altogether and was quickly replaced by the more communist-leaning National Miners Union, which advocated more aggressive tactics in the takedown of capitalist oppressors. The rise in local radicalism culminated in what became known as the Battle of Everts, a brief but bloody altercation that occurred when striking miners ambushed deputies who were delivering goods to the non-union scabs the mine had hired to replace strikers. No one knows who fired the first shot, but when it was all over, three deputies and one miner lay dead and the National Guard had to be called to quell the fighting. But they couldn't quell the resentment. While it's unknown whether Sam Reese had anything at all to do with the Battle of Everts, that didn't mean anything to Sheriff Blair. Three of his deputies were dead and the Union was going to have to pay for it. The cars pulled up to the Reese home just after sunset. Florence heard their tires on the gravel road and ordered the kids to huddle in the empty corner. The car doors slammed and several sets of feet approached the house. Florence knew not to expect a knock. The door burst open and a contingent of Black Mountain's deputized security guards rushed in, shotguns drawn. They demanded to know where Sam was, and Florence answered truthfully that she had no idea. She was at least as relieved as she was terrified, because if Blair's thugs really didn't know where Sam was, he was probably okay. They tried again. Where the hell is he? Never one to back down from a confrontation, Florence informed the guards that that kind of language isn't used in this house. There are children present. Convinced they'd get no cooperation from the famously indignant songwriter, they began rifling through the family's belongings. Florence had no idea what they were looking for, union documents, she supposed, but the longer they went without finding it, the more frantic their searching became. They pulled drawers out of the dresser, turned them upside down, and kicked through their contents. The children quivered and the younger ones cried as the guards unfurled blankets, pulled the sheets off the mattress, and then the mattress off the bed. Florence stood defiantly between the thugs and her children until, after what seemed like an eternity, everything the family owned had been overturned. With nothing left to ransack, Blair's thugs left as unceremoniously as they had arrived. The kids remained frozen in the corner, the small ones trying to slow down their breathing and the older ones trying to remember to breathe at all. Are they gone? asked the oldest. They had listened to the footsteps traversing the drive and had heard the car doors open and shut, but no ignition had fired. The thugs were waiting for Sam. Don't you worry, baby, said Florence. What they want ain't in this house. Is daddy coming home? asked the youngest. It killed Florence that even her littlest could figure out that the phrase, what they want, referred to her daddy. But that was life in Harlan County. Rivalries were as plain as day, and even the babies could see who was out to get who. Daddy's not coming home just yet, explained Florence, but don't you worry about that, neither. Your dad is a smart man, and he'll come home when it's right. Florence gave the kids a few more moments to recover from the trauma, then rallied them to put the house back in order. Her default for comforting the little ones was always to sing hymns, 
So, without thinking, she began singing Lay the Lily Low. She'd always loved that melody, so much so that when she ran through the religious version of the lyrics, she started up on the secular version, which was called Jack Monroe. It tells the story of a young woman whose lover gets caught up in a war. She disguises herself as a man and calls herself Jack Monroe so that she can gain access to the arena of battle to check on him. She finds him on a heap of corpses, but he isn't dead yet, so she takes him to a doctor. In the end, he recuperates, the two get married, and as is rarely the case in Appalachian ballads, they live happily ever after. No bad associations, no murder, no infidelity, no wicked women, and no women as victims. Just one determined heroine who braves the field of battle and would do anything to save the man she loves. That's it, thought Florence. That's my melody. She rummaged through the remaining debris to find the pencil stub she'd held in her hand earlier that evening. There was still no blank paper, but she noticed one of her children rehanging a wall calendar and said, Baby, let Mama have that for a minute. Suddenly, the writer's block that had paralyzed her only an hour earlier seemed like a long, dead folly. Florence remembered who she was and where she lived. In Harlan County, you can't go soft on your commitment. You're in the fight whether you want to be or not. And the best thing you can do is play your part. Florence was a songwriter and a poet. That's what she did. So she found a relatively untouched page on the calendar and she began to write. My daddy was a miner, he's now in the air and sun. He'll be with you, fellow workers, till every battle's won. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Now all of you know which side you're on, and they'll never keep us down. Thanks for listening to Plucked, stories plucked straight from the history of folk and acoustic music. This show is made possible by extremely generous friends who let me use their music, and in this episode that includes Sage Arias, whose music you can buy at orchestrium.bandcamp.com and at halfpence-and-haypenny.bandcamp.com slash releases. Also, Tim Curtis Schatz, drummer for One-Eyed Riley, which you can find at oneeyedriley.com. And Ken Burnett, whose musical projects you can check out at mandolinavenue.com, thevintagefindband.com, and side-wheeler.com. Our theme music is She's Easy to Dream About by another good friend, John Emery. That's capital J-O-N, capital E-M-E-R-Y, all one word, at johnemerymusic.com. For more information on all of these artists, please see the show notes for this episode at plucked.com. And for Cry I visit these artists' websites, go to their shows, give them your money, they're musicians. During a pandemic, they need it. 
Speaking of which, if you're a musician and you're willing to let me play your acoustic instrumentals on this show, I'm always looking for originals or tunes from the public domain that I can use on this show legally. I can't afford to pay you anything, but I can promise to be your new best virtual friend. Just drop me a line at pluckedpodcast at gmail.com. I'll be happy to hear from you. Plucked is now available through Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and just about any other purveyor of fine podcasts. Special thanks to my wife and webmaster, Linda Easton, for doing all the stuff I'm too dense to figure out. I'm Bobby Waller. Thanks for listening to Plucked.